Welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. This is episode number five. I'm Bill Whitson, owner of Cultivariable and your host. This is our second Q&A episode. I have 23 questions or so from you, and uh, I will do my best to answer them, and uh, we'll see how it goes. I'm still kind of amazed that anybody wants to listen to me blather on for an hour or two. But uh, as long as you're, as long as you continue to send me questions, I will continue to try to answer them. Uh, if you have a question that you would like to have on the podcast, you can send it to podcast at cultivariable.com. And uh, whenever I rack up enough questions, I will do a new Q&A episode. So without further ado, we have uh, three questions from Kate. First question. Which tubers are the best for permaculture? Hmm. So I guess the first thing I should <laughs> I should say is that I don't really practice permaculture. Uh, I, I'm not unfamiliar with it either. I've, I've I've read a number of permaculture texts, but I but I don't really have uh, great hands-on experience in this regard. I'm unconvinced that. Well. You know, I think you can work almost any plant into a, a permaculture system. But if you're looking at permaculture as a system that primarily focuses on perennial vegetables, I'm not sure that most tuber crops really really fit that niche. You know, most most tuber crops are perennial in the sense that they they regrow from their tubers. Uh, most of them senesce at the end of the growing season and regrow the next year. So, uh, others uh, may be true perennials that continue to grow, but uh, set aside tubers as a you know, as kind of a backup strategy. But the the problem in, in any case with using tubers in permaculture is, is really one of management eventually if you're going to eat them you're going to have to dig them up and that entails a lot of soil disturbance if you don't dig them up and you try to treat them like perennials you know if you if you if you're hoping to bank a crop of tubers in the soil for multiple years it's in most cases it's not really going to work that way i mean there are, there are plants that uh, where where the where the tubers do hold over for multiple years but but most plants the, the the tubers are an annual organ. They're they're going to sprout the next year, and then they're going to die and be you know reabsorbed into into the soil. So so that's tricky. the The trickier problem I think is that without human management, tuberous crops are going to crowd, and that that happens very quickly. And that means your yields are going to be bad. And I, I suppose you might overcome that if you've set aside an area where you're going to let the tubers naturalize and they're going to spread out. And so, in the by virtue of spreading, you're going to you're going to have more more tuber mass in the ground, even though they're they're likely to be crowded and small. But but the, it, that's 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 going to be kind of difficult to manage. The other huge problem that huge problem that you may have depending on uh, you know what species we're talking about is is disease plants growing year on year 
in the same place, disease can be a problem. A lot of permaculture plants tend to be, uh, well, that's a gross generalization. Um, a lot of the plants that people tend to depend on more in, in permaculture, the more perennials, woody plants and whatnot, are not so widely grown and there isn't such a huge bank of pests and diseases waiting to prey upon them. But a lot of tuber crops are fairly vulnerable in that regard. They're particularly vulnerable to accumulating viruses. Pests will most definitely zero in on them once they know that they're there. Rodents can become a huge problem with just about any tuber crop. So it's hard to grow them in the same place. So, so if we're talking about perennial culture of, of tuber crops, I, I, I think it's easier said than done. But I am far from an expert on permaculture, so perhaps, um, perhaps someone will come along and enlighten us and, uh, and, and share some more info. If there's, a, if there's a permaculture expert out there who does a lot of work with tubers, I'd, I'd be happy to have you on the podcast and discuss this some more. So that's the best I can do. I hope that at least got somewhere near the answer that you wanted. Uh, second question from Kate. Are there any tuber crops that fix nitrogen? Yeah, there are quite a few tuber or tuberous root forming crops that fix nitrogen. It depends on, I mean, technically they fix nitrogen. The question is, will they fix nitrogen for you if you are growing them for their edible tubers? The, the thing with a lot of nitrogen fixing crops is that you have to either chop down or turn in the greens uh, from that crop at the, at, at the right stage of growth in order to capture the, the nitrogen. You know, they don't, they don't just dump nitrogen into the soil. They, they capture nitrogen and they use it to grow their foliage. And the problem with a lot of tuber crops is that the, the, the tubers are ready after the top of the plant has senesced, at which point there's really very little nitrogen left in it. So I'm not sure if it's really possible to to get a dual purpose crop that that both provides you with tubers to eat and fixes nitrogen. But uh, setting that aside, uh, so, some crops that you might look at are, uh, are groundnut, Apios americana. Uh, you know, a lot of these are, are legumes. They, uh, they're, they're plants that produce you know, beans or, or peas uh, in the aerial plant, but, but that also have a, um, have tuber reproduction as kind of a reserve strategy. So, so groundnut is a, is, a, is a good one. Runner beans are another one that might surprise many people. The plants, generally we eat runner, we, we, we grow runner beans in order to eat the beans, but they also produce tubers and the, the the crop could use some work to develop those but they're not bad they're edible then you have the yam beans um, which are jicama and ahipa both crops produce a pretty large edible root and uh, another one you might think of is tuberous pea which is uh Lathyrus tuberosus. Tubers are pretty small in that species, but I, I've seen people get 
get some reasonable results from it. Mine, mine haven't been that great, but uh, but it's definitely worth a look. It might be one of the species that that could colonize a fair bit of ground and perhaps be a little more suitable as a as a perennial as a perennial tuber crop. But they'll all fix nitrogen. The the only question is how you can work a strategy around that. How do you how do you grow the crop to get food and also use it to fix nitrogen? If you figure that out, let me know. Another question from Kate. Uh, I noticed the pictures of the really long tap roots on Aracacha. Do you think it might be a dynamic accumulator? So for anybody who's not familiar with the concept of a dynamic accumulator, uh, I think it's primarily a permaculture concept. The idea is that these plants um, reach down into the deeper levels of the soil and accumulate minerals that other plants aren't able to reach as easily and and therefore uh, those plants can be broken down and used as fertilizer to make those those minerals more available i i'm not sure how much reality there is in the concept of uh dynamic accumulators so uh, my understanding of how uh, i'll just cut to the chase on this one because i don't really know enough to answer this question well i i don't I don't think there I don't think that the concept of dynamic accumulators is necessarily valid and even if it is I have no idea if <laughs> if Aracacha might be a dynamic accumulator so I will defer to uh anyone who has greater expertise on that subject um I I guess I could say this uh, I've looked at the I've looked at the the nutritional analysis of aracacha, and it is not particularly high in any given mineral. So that would seem to refute the idea that it that it could be used as a dynamic accumulator. Uh, sorry, kind of mushy answers on those. I'm not a I'm not a huge permaculture guy, but uh, maybe somebody will uh, stop by in the near future and uh, and enlighten us on the subject. Uh, next up is Brent. I see you have 2018 listed as a year for Yampa seed uh, collecting. Can you explain the process that you go through to travel for seeds? Yeah. So the the big problem with collecting for this particular species is that it grows all over the western U.S. I have a very limited amount of time available to travel and hunt for it. And... I'm looking for a number of different species, so I have to cover a fairly large area. So, so I try to find locations that uh, that are already known for these species, so that I at least have a good starting point. So the first thing I do is look at online databases um, for these species. Uh, one good one uh, for California is called Calflora, and uh, it has maps that show you coordinates and locations where um, these species have been observed. So that's uh, that's pretty helpful for California. I also go to the scientific literature. Um, there's not a hell of a lot of it for Yampa, but you know if you read enough papers, you're going to find some where people have collected the plant. Usually those provide coordinates. So I add those coordinates to my list. 
And then the third thing that I do is look for pictures that people have taken on the internet because um, very often these days cameras embed the latitude and longitude um, in the metadata of the picture. So I went and scoured the internet for pictures of Yampa and then looked to see if those pictures had metadata and if they did then I took those coordinates and added those to my list. So I uh, those give me some really firm leads and I go and I look in those places and uh, uh, you know usually you're going to find that that environment is it, it extends beyond that you know particular coordinate point so you're in the right area and if you if you expand out from those from those uh, from those points you can typically find some some other populations in the immediate area. Of course, sometimes you go to the coordinate and there's nothing there. The plants just aren't there anymore. It's the wrong time of year. Uh, in general, it's all kind of a big pain, but, um, but, but, but those are a good start. The other thing that I do, casting a slightly wider net, is to look in Google Earth for areas that look like likely habitats for these plants. So, Yampa is an example of a plant that grows primarily where conditions uh, remain pretty wet into late spring. And so, because a lot of the west is pretty dry, you're going to find those in largely in areas that are near uh, lakes or rivers. And you can look at Google Earth to see where the, uh, you know, where where the where the terrain remains pretty green near sources of water, and those are good places to look for yampa. So the, the process is going to be different for every plant, but, but, but I think those are all pretty good strategies for, for looking for a particular given plant in the wild. Peter asks three questions. Hmm, I should have thought about <laughs> some of these questions a little more. Um, so so the, the, the first question is, can you talk about why all gardeners should also be plant breeders? I'm not sure that I necessarily subscribe to that idea. People garden for lots of different reasons. I, I, I can give you lots of reasons why I think gardeners would benefit from doing some plant breeding. The The, the most obvious benefit is that you can do some adaptation of plants to your local environment, which should give you improved performance. It gives you an opportunity to perhaps select for form or flavor that you that you prefer. But I think almost as important is that you simply learn a, a lot about a plant by doing even a little bit of, ble of, of breeding with it. You have to learn a lot about its reproductive methodology. You have to learn a lot about the conditions under which you know, it can reproduce. You know, a lot of gardeners don't even grow plants from seed. They buy starts at a nursery. Um, so it all depends on, on, on what your level of knowledge is. Plant breeding is maybe the final and, and furthest uh, frontier if you, uh, you know, for a gardener. 
Uh, you're not necessarily going to come right out the gate breeding plants, but after you've after you've gained quite a bit of experience with a particular plant, it, it might be it might be a next step if you want to if you want to you know come to come to appreciate it more deeply. Uh, so I don't think every gardener should be a plant breeder, but I think I think breeding plants can make you a better gardener, and I think it's a way of I th I think it. I think in many cases it could be a natural progression as you as you gain more experience to move into plant breeding. So I hope that came somewhere near near answering your question. Okay, some some GMO questions. Uh, uh, two more from from Peter. Can you explain how GMOs could make all plants sterile? I don't think. I don't think that's likely. Um, so I, I think what we're getting at here is that um, there is a there, there's a gene package which could be added to plants um, that's referred to as a as a terminator gene, and the purpose of the terminator gene is to prevent the plant from producing seed. There are a couple of different ways of going about this, but what, what it boils down to is that if a, if a plant is pollinated by a plant that has the terminator gene, then while it will produce seed, the seed will not be viable. So the, the question is how, how would... You know, some apocalyptic scenarios have been imagined. Well, what if this terminator gene spread into other plants, plants that were not genetically engineered? Would we then end up with uh, some scenario where these where these plants all all die out because they can't reproduce anymore? But uh, the 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 thing is, you would have to have ongoing reproduction for that to happen. And so, if a but if a non genetically engineered plant is pollinated by a genetically engineered plant that has the terminator gene it, it will produce non-viable seed and so it won't it won't go on to reproduce and so there's really that's that's a dead end right the the it's the the gene is not going to spread from there i i suppose you could imagine a scenario where we have just absolutely huge monocrops of some genetically engineered plant that has the terminator gene and um, relatively small and vulnerable populations of a you know compatible member of the species that can be pollinated by it and and thereby the the natural population gets gets wiped out simply because it's because it's heavily pollinated by the plant with the terminator gene but this is a it's a pretty specific scenario. I, I mean, I can conceive of you know, corner cases where the the Terminator gene doesn't work properly and and uh, is able to make its way into uh, you know a, a wild population where it becomes activated only in in combination with a with another gene, and so goes on to spread and become damaging in a, in a wild population. But 
I'd have to work pretty hard to come up with with any kind of big problem there. In, in many ways, the, uh, the 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 Terminator technology seems like a like a good idea that addresses uh, one of the bigger concerns with with genetic engineering, which is which is having you know heirloom or or simply conventional varieties cross-pollinated from a genetically engineered population with the terminator gene those those plants would simply set non-viable seed and so the and, and so the the genes from the genetically engineered variety would not would not spread in those populations but setting all of this aside I, as far as I know, no plants have actually been released with this trait. I think it, it scared the public so badly that uh, there was kind of a backlash and, and it, was, it was abandoned. So it's probably not going to happen anytime soon. Okay, uh, third question from Peter. Can you explain how GMOs create super weeds? Uh... Well, first of all, what's a superweed? A superweed is a weed that has become resistant to the dominant herbicide used in a field. So it's super by virtue of the fact that it can it can survive poisoning. And this is just a, a pretty straightforward example of evolution. You spray a big uh, field of weeds with herbicide, there are likely to be a few plants in there that have some resistance to it. And if you repeatedly spray, then those few plants that have resistance are going to be the only ones that are able to reproduce, and they're going to go on to found populations that are more and more resistant as you continue to spray. Sooner or later, the spray is not going to work on the majority of the weeds in your field anymore, and so you have super weeds. But superweeds are not super where you don't spray herbicides. So a superweed is is not so much of a problem under other growing methodologies. You know, superweed means nothing to me. Superweed dies if I chop it with my hoe. Superweed dies if I hit it with a flame weeder. Or if I pull it by hand or any of the many ways that I get rid of weeds that, that don't involve any poisons. When, a, when, when there's a superweed that can, you know, <laughs> that can resist the hoe, that, then, then I've really got something to worry about. But yeah, it's really, it's really very straight, straightforward. It's, it's, uh, it's adaptation of exactly the sort that we would use in, in plant breeding. If you select heavily for a trait, then that is what you will eventually get. And Spraying repeatedly with herbicide is selecting heavily for plants that can survive herbicide. Three questions. That seems to be the theme this time. So three questions from Melissa. Can you please pronounce the scientific names of the South American tuber crops? Uh, I surely can. I will pronounce them for you the way that I say them. And I guess the most important thing to understand about scientific names is that there is no right way to pronounce them. Um, Latin is a dead language. Uh, scientific names are meant to be written uh, more than they are meant to be spoken. Uh, there is no official way to pronounce Latin. 
and there is no official way to pronounce scientific names. There are certainly some ways to pronounce them that are more common than others, but uh, the pronunciations differ very much from country to country. And uh, as long as people understand what you're talking about, there's, there's really no wrong way to pronounce these. But I will tell you how I pronounce them, and then people who have other ways of pronouncing them can giggle in the background. Okay, so Achira is Canna Edulis. Ahipa is Pachyrhizus Ahipa. Aracacha is Aracacha Xanthorhiza. Maca is Lepidium Mayenii. Mashua is Tropiolum Tuberosum. Mauca is Mirabilis Expansa. Oka is Oxalis Tuberosa. Uyuko is Ulucus tuberosus. Yacon is Smalanthus sanchifolius. And I know that in almost every one of those cases, there are common alternate ways to pronounce them. So don't worry about it. Just, just let those scientific names fly. You can't be wrong. Okay, uh, question number two from Melissa. What happened to rhubarb? You used to have a really good rhubarb page and I can't find it anymore. Uh, yeah, I, so I'm still growing and breeding rhubarb. I had a, I had a lot of problems with the, with the rhubarb page. One of, my, one of my biggest concerns with rhubarb is that there's a lot of conventional wisdom about how to grow it and very little of that conventional wisdom is actually has actually been scientifically tested and the more i've grown rhubarb the less i've come to believe in a lot of uh, a lot of the advice that is given for how best to grow it so my my rhubarb page relied pretty heavily on on that kind of information and i just decided uh, rather than disclaimer it heavily, uh, I was just going to take it down until I was more confident in uh, in the information. So I'm still working on it in the background, and uh, undoubtedly that page will will reappear in the future, and and hopefully the quality will be better. So uh, in the meantime, you know there wasn't a whole lot that was unique in that page. I, uh, I was I was going with common advice for for growing rhubarb, so um, th there was nothing there was nothing in that page that um, you can't find from other sources. Oh, uh, sorry, that I was wrong. So that that that's it for Melissa. Uh, now we're on to Martin. Do you select for vertical or horizontal resistance in your potatoes? The simplest answer is yes. So let's review horizontal and vertical resistance. Um, these are terms uh, primarily used uh, by uh, Raoul Robinson, who wrote the, the book Return to Resistance, and uh, some other books I'm not remembering at the moment. But the, but the concept is generally that vertical resistance is single gene resistance. So 
I will use potatoes as an example. It's, it's, it's an easy one in this case. So there are genes found in potatoes from uh, Central America that, that, that provide total resistance or heavy resistance to, to late blight. And uh, these are very convenient because, because it's a single gene. So you don't have to do too many crosses from a wild potato that, that has that gene into domesticated potato in order to move that one, in order to move that one gene. And in some cases you can find that there are, that there is more than one gene providing resistance in different species. And so you can make a cross with one wild species to move one of those resistance genes and then make another cross with another wild species to move an additional resistance gene. And these single genes are then referred to as stacked. And so that's vertical resistance. Uh, it's the, the resistance is provided by one gene. It's very strong. And you can find multiple sources of these individual genes to stack in, vertically. The problem with vertical resistance is that any kind of single gene resistance is fairly easy for evolution to overcome. So as soon as a pathogen overcomes that single gene resistance, all the work that you did is now for naught. And because the, the resistance is very strong and very uniform, the pathogen has to adapt quickly in order to survive. So in contrast, we have the concept of horizontal resistance, and that is generally incomplete multi-gene resistance. So instead of having a single gene that provides very good resistance, we have perhaps a large number of interacting genes that give partial resistance. Uh, resistance. The the plant may the plant may still suffer from the disease, but survive long enough to yield. So we may have partial resistance conferred by a larger number of genes that allows the plant to survive infection, but that is not so complete that it prevents the pathogen from also surviving. So because the pathogen can survive, it is it has less pressure on it to adapt to the new situation. That, that slows the rate of, of evolution in overcoming the resistance. So it may be a more durable form of resistance over the long run. Um, vertical, vertical resistance is very strong, but perhaps not very long-lived whereas horizontal resistance is weaker, but potentially much longer lived. I will breed for any kind of resistance that I can get. I prefer to breed for horizontal resistance when I can, but I don't always know which kind of resistance I'm getting. My, uh, my operation is not so sophisticated that I can necessarily puzzle that out every time. But I'm, I'm happy to see any case where a plant has very strong res resistance against a pest or disease. And I'm, I'm equally happy when I see a case where a plant merely 
survives infection and goes on to yield well. And if I can cross plants that have both forms of, resi of resistance, then I'm, I'm doubly happy. Question number two, I'm following your post about guard cells. Can you please explain more about guard cells and chromosomes? So this is going to relate to uh, some posts that I've made on the Kenosha Potato Project Facebook group. In, in potatoes, there are two common levels of ploidy. There are tetraploid potatoes, which are, which are by far the most common. They have four copies of each chromosome. But there are also diploid potatoes, which are um, of South American origin and are, are much less common, but, uh, but they have two sets of chromosomes. And there are implications for mismatching diploids and tetraploids in, in breeding. It might not be successful at all, or uh, if, you, if you know what you're doing, you can, you can make crosses between the two levels. Or, or, frankly, even if you don't know what you're doing and you're just lucky. But the point is, uh, there, there are advantages to understanding how best to cross diploids and tetraploids. Uh, and the, b before you can do that um, intentionally, you have to know if your potato is diploid or tetraploid. Uh, for most people, that's very easy. If you bought potatoes at the store or from any major seed potato supplier, they're tetraploid. You don't need to test anything. But if you've been growing potatoes from seed or if you you've swapped potatoes with somebody who's doing their own potato breeding, then all bets are off. You could definitely have some, some diploids mixed in there. So how do you tell uh, which is which? There are some ways that you can, you, you can tell reasonably well through just morphological characteristics of the plant, if a plant is diploid or tetraploid. Uh, a, a tetraploid, generally speaking, is going to have it's going to be a larger plant with broader leaves. The berries are going to be uh, more round, usually, and the tubers typically are bigger and the yields higher. Um, whereas in a diploid, the leaves are usually going to be much longer, much narrower. I should take that back. The leaves aren't necessarily going to be longer. They're going to be narrower. Uh, the, the, the berries are more pointed or acorn-shaped. Um, the tubers typically smaller and the yields lesser. But these, these are generalizations and they're, they, they're not always true. And you don't always have the ability to look at all of the characteristics and, and any any one characteristic in particular is not really enough to make a determination. So if you've, if you've looked at a plant and you've said this plant has narrow leaves, it has an acorn-shaped berry, it has fairly small tubers, there's a pretty good chance that plant is diploid. But if all you've been able to look at is the leaves, uh, then it would be very, very easy to go wrong. And in some cases, even if all of the morphological characteristics line up, it still turns out that you're wrong. 
so it's not perfect but but you can you can get a pretty good idea just by looking at the plant now if you want to be sure then you need a microscope and this is where we get to guard cells so the only way to be absolutely sure uh, about the ploidy of a plant is to count its chromosomes and this is absolutely possible you need a you need a microscope that has a that, that has a combined magnification of a thousand X and you you need fairly good microscope skills and you need to do quite a bit of preparation of the sample uh, in advance of looking at it uh, for example you need typically how you do it is you take a you take a cutting from the plant grow that cutting in water until it begins to form roots and then you take you take the, the, the tip of one of those roots, you treat it in a, in a particular way and stain it, and then you're able to look inside the cells uh, for, for cells that are at, at metaphase, that are going through mitosis, and you can count the chromosomes in those cells. It's, it's a fair amount of work. It requires some good practice with a microscope. It's something that I very rarely do unless I've got a really unusual cross and I and I'm really uncertain about what I'm looking at the vast majority of the time I go with a with a proxy to um, chromosome count which is counting the number of chloroplasts in a guard cell so uh, leaves have structures on the bottom called stoma and the 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 stomata open and close to um, to admit gases into the leaf and the, the the stomata are formed by two guard cells the guard cells expand and contract to to open or close the the stoma so you know if you if you look at the bottom of a leaf under even very light magnification like with a magnifying glass you can see you can see the stomata so the so the the cells the two cells that control the opening and closing are, are are pretty large so you can put those under a microscope you can you can take the 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 lower epidermis from the leaf put it on a microscope stain it and and at only about 40x you can see those you can see those guard cells and inside each guard cell are a number of chloroplasts and the you know the, when they're stained, these just look like you know, round blobs in each of the sort of crescent-shaped guard cells. And the number of chloroplasts in each guard cell relates to the number of of chromosomes in the plant. So you can you can count ten to twenty guard cells, average the number, and and then you can look up a reference to determine what ploidy that plant most likely has the 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 ratio is different for every given plant in some plants we know the ratios and others we don't and it's it probably doesn't hold in in every case but it does in many so it's a it's it's a useful technique and it's particularly useful in potatoes where you need to know whether a plant is diploid or tetraploid more often than you might with with most other plants 
I think I got kind of lost along the way there. Did I answer your question? Uh, looks pretty good. Uh, and third question for Martin, what microscope would you recommend for looking at plants? Um, I can't recommend a particular brand or, or model. Uh, the, it's just, there are too many and the quality varies widely, but I can tell you, you know, what kind of characteristics to look for. You want a microscope that has at least three objectives and that gives you a range of something like 100x, 400x, 1000x. That will suffice for most, for most things that you want to do with plants. In many cases, the level of magnification might actually be too much. For a lot of things, a dissecting microscope, which has has lower magnification, is often useful as well. You want to you want a microscope that has a built-in light. You don't want to be messing around with the you know older budget microscopes that have mirrors instead of lights. That's uh, just a pain. It makes indoor work really really difficult. I mean, you can you can do it if you're t determined, but uh, intense light makes a big difference. I would recommend that you get a, a binocular microscope. Uh, you don't necessarily need one. You can shave a few bucks off the price if you if you go with a monocular microscope. But you know you have two eyes. It's easier to use both of them. A, a binocular microscope also gives you the opportunity to look through the microscope with one of the eyepieces while you use a camera on the other one. So that could be nice. If, if you really want to do a lot of photography through the microscope, then you might look at a trinocular model. The, those are, you know, bi, bi, binocular microscopes that have an additional camera port and that can, that can be very useful. I don't recommend buying any kind of a microscope that has a built-in camera because these things are digital cameras and they'll be obsolete before long. You know, one good place to find microscopes is through surplus sales at, uh, you know, if you have a local college or university, usually they buy pretty good microscopes. It's hard to be sure when you're, if you're shopping for a new microscope, uh, it, they all have pretty much the same functions and design, but the quality of the lenses can vary quite a bit and you might not notice and you might not notice if the lenses aren't up to spec right away. You might you might not figure that out until you've got more practice under your belt, at which point it's it's probably too late. So I would take a good used microscope over an untested new microscope any day. Okay, a number of questions from Maxime. Uh, do you have tips on how to be a profitable freelance plant breeder? No. <laughs> um, well, I, I suppose it depends on um, what you mean by profit. It's, it's not difficult to be profitable. All you have to do is make more money than you spend if you if you if you're happy with a profit of you know a few hundred dollars that's fairly easy to achieve if you if you mean profitable enough to sustain your lifestyle then 
I think that's fairly difficult. Uh, you know, the, the smart money, if you want to be a plant breeder, would be to go get a PhD and, and find a university job. You're certainly going to make a lot more money that way than, than you are in almost any imaginable freelance plant breeding job. But with, within the constraints of, of freelance plant breeding, I, I think the, the, the only practical way that I have seen to do it is to basically operate your own nursery, which, of course, is exactly what I'm doing. The, you know, you have some competitive advantage in that you're breeding new varieties. And while sooner or later people are, you know, going to pick up your varieties unless you, unless you get some form of monopoly protection, you know, you're always going to have several year, years advantage on them when you introduce a new variety. So that, that can keep people coming to you to buy things. So, the, you know, that's probably the, the most common way to go about it. Of course, uh, you know, at the same time, I should point out that uh, I, I think nurseries have one of the highest failure rates of any kind of small business. So, you know, the, it's easy to start a nursery. It's, it's very hard to be successful at it. And I'm honestly not sure if I count as successful yet. You know, I, I can survive on the money that, uh, that I make at Cultivariable, but it's, it's still pretty heavily subsidized by having a previous career. And if I, if I, if I didn't already own land that was paid for by a previous career, I have, I have no idea how I would do this. Uh, if I, you know, putting myself self in the shoes of a younger person who's not really established yet and wants to become a profitable freelance plant breeder, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's pretty difficult. You might have to go spend some time working for somebody else, maybe working in the nursery business first, gain some experience and certainly some money to get yourself started. And none of that's necessarily a bad idea. Um, you know, I had never, <laughs> I had never farmed or worked for a nursery or, you know, done, <laughs> done any, uh, or worked at any aspect of the plant business in a, you know, professional capacity before I started Cultivariable. And so that, that learning curve has definitely been steep. There are probably a lot of things that I could have learned by working for someone else first. Another idea might be, you know, breed, breed ornamentals. For whatever reason, people are willing to pay much higher prices for ornamental plants than they are for edibles. It seems strange, but, you know, it's, we definitely don't value food as 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 strange as as that is you know we <laughs> it's that's true kind of across the board what uh, the in general people's the the, the highest criteria that, that people seek in in foods is low price and so i think in in line with that it's hard to charge people a, a high price for edible plants. 
they're just not going to pay it. They're going to find something else to grow instead. But many, many new, newly bred varieties of ornamental plants go for hundreds of dollars. So you can breed a much smaller number of plants and, uh, and, and maybe make a better living that way. So, um, you know, you could certainly do both, but I think there's, um, and I'm not taking my own advice here because I honestly just don't have much interest in, in ornamental plants, but, but I think if you were to incorporate that into a, into a freelance plant breeding business, that, that would definitely be a way to, to, to make a little more money. Um, I wish I had more ideas, uh, but, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the, there's a there's a level I think of. Uh, I I wish I had more advice, uh, and uh, I hope that I will uh, come up with it in the future because uh, because I could use it myself. But uh, but but it's going to take some creative thinking to make a a business based around plant breeding really work. That said. It's great work, right? I, I, I couldn't be happier doing the kind of work that I'm doing. I, I wish I could make a little more money at it, but you know, if you can find enough to, if you can find a way to make enough money to survive, and and, and you're, you know, you're 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 comfortable living a, a relatively low income lifestyle, then, you know, you, you really, you you can't beat the work. It's a lot of fun and. Uh, you know the, um, the you'd be hard pressed to find any any way to do I think as much plant breeding as you can do as a freelance breeder in the corporate or university world where you're going to have a lot of uh, conflicting responsibilities. So the, the the great thing about freelance plant breeding is you really can spend most of your time doing plant breeding. So uh, if that's what you really love, then I'll, I'll bet you can find a way to make it work. This might be better answered in email, but I'll just go ahead and do it. Uh, I got my hand on the Oka OCLG 13 4x6, and the name is not sexy at all. This is clearly some of the best genetics I could get uh, my hands on in Canada. I intend to sell some for chefs and propagation. Could you name it since I don't deserve to? Uh, <laughs> I, I am... I am fine with uh, with you naming the variety. Uh, I did not select it to continue in my breeding program, and uh, it it just wasn't it didn't have a, a big enough advantage growing here over other lines that I'm growing. If you like it and it's great for Canada, then go ahead and name it. Um, you know, all all that I ask is that. Um, you know, you identify it as a as a variety that that came out of my breeding program, but uh, but other than that, I don't really have any further interest in it. And I'm I'm glad to hear that you're going to keep growing it and to you know extend this answer to to other people who may be listening. Yeah, there I have a lot of breeding lines out there floating around that I'm simply not working with anymore. If you like them and you want to keep growing them, that's great. And if you want to give them a name fabulous. Um, 
I, I hate naming varieties. I, I come up with schemes to do it so that I don't have to think about it too much. You know, right now I name everything out of, I name everything after, uh, you know, towns and places on uh, on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington. But I'm gonna, I'm going to run out of those names sooner or later. So if if you help me name stuff, then I don't have to think about that. Okay, record keeping. I'm lost in the plant tag making and tracking. What is your method? Uh, yeah, I've been there. Um, so my current method um, is now pretty well tested, and I'm I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, I have laid out my entire field in a grid, and all my row lengths are the same, and all my spacings are the same um, for a given species. So, for example, my oka rows are all 16 feet long. They're double rows. The plants are spaced one foot apart, so I fit 32 plants in a row. And uh, I plant using a grid made out of PVC pipe so that the spacings are all exactly right. And then I make a map. And that way I don't have to have any tags out in the field. And so I just... Uh, you know, I make the map in a spreadsheet in, in Google Sheets. I'm able to access that on my smartphone. So as I go through the field, I can look up um, a given location and, and know what plant is growing there. And that has worked far better for me than anything else that I've tried. Uh, there's, no, there's no chance of losing markers that way. And uh, so I don't forget what's growing where. Another thing that I have experimented with, I don't think the technology is quite there yet, but it could be in the future, is uh, is RFID tags. Um, you know, you can buy little plastic tags that include an RFID chip, and modern smartphones can you, you can get a reader for them that that can read those RFIDs. You don't have to get right up next to the plant, you, you know, you just, so you don't even have to necessarily know exactly where. The tag is if it's lost in foliage or something but if you can get within about a foot of the base of the plant if that's where you put the, the tag then it will read it and uh, you know you can get large numbers of tags fairly cheaply so so I can see a future where um, for certain kinds of things I might I might use these tags that would eliminate the problem of you know breaking plants, you know, and messing up the foliage when you're in there scrounging around trying to find some missing tag. You can simply get close to where the tag is. You can read it. That's that's really convenient. Um, I think the price needs to come down a little bit, and the uh, the tags themselves need to withstand water a little bit more than they do now. Uh, the, the, the fairly cheap ones tend to admit water and then sooner or later they become unreadable. But I definitely think that's something to look for in the future. Okay, uh, I'd like to hear in detail about oka pollination since I intend to do my first hand pollination this, this autumn. Um, well first I would point you to a blog post on the website and um, that post is titled Oka Maximizing Seed Yield of Crosses. It uh, 
It's from 2013. It covers the process fairly well. I'll put a link to it with the podcast when I put the podcast up on the website. Um, the basics are Oka has a tri-stylus incompatibility system. So in each Oka flower, there are two levels of stamens and one level of styles. And the arrange the arrangement is different in in each possible combination. So a short styled flower has styles at the bottom and then two levels of stamens above it. And a mid-styled flower has a level of stamens at the bottom, then a level of styles, then a level of stamens at the top. And a long-styled flower has a level of stamens at the bottom, then a level of stamens at the middle, and then a level of styles at the top. The trick is that the styles of a given flower can only be pollinated by the corresponding level of stamens in another flower. So a short-styled flower cannot pollinate another short-styled flower because it needs to be pollinated by a flower that has stamens in the lowest position. So a short-styled flower can be pollinated by a mid-styled flower or by a long-styled flower because both of those have stamens in the bottom position. And so that's the that's the basic rule and that leads to different possible combinations of of pollinate of pollinators. There are some there are some less standard cases. So the one kind of flower that can actually self-pollinate with oka is the mid-styled flower where <clears throat> a mid-styled flower can be pollinated by the low level stamens of either itself or another mid-styled flower but the rate of success is very low so you can divide pollinations into legitimate pollinations which are those that i described first where the pollination occurs from the corresponding level of another flower there are also a few illegitimate pollinations where where the pollination can occur from a stamen on uh, on a level that does not correspond but in every case the illegitimate poll pollinations have a very low level of success it would be very boring for me to recount all the possibilities here so take a look at that blog post it has pictures as well which will help a lot and it pretty much covers all the possibilities Okay, six questions from Mike, and, uh, and then we'll be done. Can you talk about the potential for improving yampa as a food crop? Well, I hope that yampa has great potential as a food crop, but yampa is essentially a wild crop. It's possible that there has been, that there was in the past a little bit of domesticated done by Native Americans, but but we don't really know. Um, you know, it was certainly used by Native Americans. It may have been moved around a little bit and in the process gotten some light domestication, but the, but the picture there is not particularly clear. 
as as basically a wild plant, it's you know its possibilities are are uncertain. You know, in general, we don't domesticate new wild plants anymore. I mean that it, it it does happen to some degree that we, particularly with with things like like tree fruits that that already produce you know fairly good size. Um, fruits and reasonable yields, you know, some of those have have, have come under, uh, I guess, new domestication. But in terms of, of vegetable crops, it's I, I can't think of a single example where where modern breeders have really domesticated a new crop. So the, the problem with Yampa, there are a lot of problems with Yampa, but the maybe the 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 biggest one is that the the roots are just very small, you know. The think a decent one think is something like the the, the tip of your pinky finger. Uh, there are certainly some that are much bigger than that, but if you were to look at the average yampa that you pull out of the ground, that's that's about right. And it would be pretty hard to convince a farmer to grow an acre of yampa for market based upon that. I mean, I suppose if the price were were great, if we if we were able to market as some kind of superfood, then you know all bets are off. But in just in terms of the ratio of effort to calories produced, not that many people are going to want to grow yampa. I've seen already some good progress in, in selecting for larger root size, so that's hopeful. Uh, you know the we don't know how productive that's going to be. Uh, often it's easy to make gains early on, and then it becomes more difficult. So, uh, you know, ask me in five years, and I'll I'll have a better answer. But I think, you know, it uh, it's very edible. It tastes good. I've had some success breeding for larger roots. So I I think that means that there's there's pretty good possibility for you know for further domestication there are a lot of things that we need to deal with along the way though it has a very short growing season which is timed largely by drought which it's very sensitive to so just cultural practices may help with that irrigation you know tends to prolong the growing season for yampa but it would be also it would also be good to breed for a longer growing season because that would likely make it possible to produce larger roots even though the the root stops growing early on the seeds often take a long time to mature and they are as is often true with plants in the family apace fairly vulnerable to moisture and humidity and so that can be a problem growing the plant from seed is very slow very little is accomplished the first year. It makes a very tiny storage root, and and most of the action happens in the second year. You can compress that by vernalizing the uh, the, the roots, so that you can kind of accomplish the first two years of growth in one year. Uh, but that's a pain, so it would be good to breed varieties that develop more quickly and again that might relate to the length of the growing season so that needs to be worked on so there are a lot of things to work on with yampa but 
but you know you can already you can see the shape of a food crop in it already you know you can imagine if 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 this root were just a little bigger this would be a very appealing crop so so i think there's good potential for it okay can you talk about the process of selecting for pat for palatability in potato strains that tend toward bitterness such as high dormancy diploids or crosses between wild and domesticated species yeah so the good news so bitterness in potatoes is a function of glycoalkaloid content glycoalkaloids are toxic and um, the bitterness is a warning to us that the that the tuber you know is going to give you some gastrointestinal upset if you eat too much or or worse if you eat way too much um, the the good news is that it's it's a multigenetic trait and crosses the the level of glycoalkaloids in that 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 come out in crosses between varieties that have a lot and a little ten, tends to pretty much be a normal distribution. So if you if you make a cross between a domesticated potato that has really low glyco, like glycoalkaloids and a and a wild potato that has high then as long as you grow enough seedlings out you're you're going to get some that have low glycoalkaloids and, and and quite a few that have you know low to moderate so there there's going to be plenty there to work with if you grow 100 plants you're going to get at least 10 plants that that you know that are probably palatable and 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 very likely more in my experience any cross with between a wild and a domesticated species gives you gives you plenty of palatable potatoes to work with now the, the now palatable is is relative the the only thing that i have to test glycoalkaloid levels in potatoes is my tongue and i know that it's not as finely attuned as like a titration would be i know that i am fairly tolerant of bitter flavors and i like the taste of potatoes that have levels of glycoalkaloid that exceed what is the, the commonly accepted limit of 20 milligrams per 100 grams of potato so it's possible that in some cases i'm selecting potatoes that could make me sick if i ate a lot of them it hasn't really happened yet to the best of my knowledge but you know there's always a little uncertainty when you work with glycoalkaloids and for adults that's there's really very little risk I wouldn't go feeding my newest potato creation to children without a fair bit of experience with it first because they have lower body weights and therefore they are you know more vulnerable to you know they're they're likely to to eat proportionally a higher amount of potato relative to their body weights and therefore they're more vulnerable to glycoalkaloid poisoning but that probably all sounds unnecessarily pessimistic. I think in general, you have to worry very little about glycoalkaloids. If it's bitter, don't eat it. Don't breed with it anymore. Toss that variety. Select for varieties that, that, that are not bitter, and in general, you're going to be fine. 
Can you describe the process of identifying and reducing diseases in potatoes and other tuber crops, or can you recommend a good resource? Yeah, well, this is, I spend a lot of my time on this. So identifying is fairly straightforward insofar as it's, it's not hard to find descriptions and pictures of diseases, but there's a real art to being able to identify them in the field. And I have learned this because I've done a lot of testing of varieties that I grow and have very often been surprised both when I was sure that a variety had a particular disease and turned out to be wrong and when I was sure that a variety was healthy and, and turned out to be wrong. Both have happened fairly frequently. It's not always easy to tell if a variety has a virus or a nutritional deficiency and you can find many sources that will that will give you pictures particularly when it comes to nutrient deficiencies and and give you you know very simple diagnostic criteria and in, in just in many cases you're just going to be wrong that it's very hard to get that specific just based on on the appearance of the plant but with experience and with a good and with a good guidebook you can get pretty good at recognizing which plants likely have viruses which plants likely have fungal diseases, which plants likely have bacterial diseases, and in many cases you don't need to go much beyond those categories. And uh, I will and I will link to some books that cover potato diseases when I put up this podcast. As for reducing diseases, that's that's a much bigger trick. So the it depends on what kind of disease you're dealing with, but the kind of the gold standard for eliminating disease from a clonally propagated crop is meristem culture or tissue culture. So this is essentially uh, taking very, very small cuttings. You're really just cutting, you're, you know, under magnification, you're cutting off the, the very end of the growing tip on a sprout. And then you grow that in a, on a, an agar-based uh, medium in a test tube or other culture vessel with a, with a certain nutrient mix to support the plant. And, uh, and you allow that to grow. Eventually you add other hormones that um, cause it to produce roots and shoots. And eventually you have a small plant. And hopefully you have a clean plant because the the growing tip of uh of a plant is is multiplying at a very fast rate and is often able to outpace the multiplication rate of viruses that are that have infected the plant but it's it's definitely an art the smaller a piece of growing tip you can get the better it works and i'm talking very small like you know the tip of a pin. The more material you take, the more likely you get some virus in there and then you end up with an infected plant. And so it takes practice. It's not certain. And the only way you can be certain is to test the plant for diseases somewhere along the process. Testing for most common diseases is pretty easy. It can be done with an ELISA test, uh, which is a biochemical test. Um, the, 
essentially you, you you macerate some of the some of the plant material, you put it in a in a testing plate, you add you add reagents and an antibody to uh, and you see if it develops a reaction or not. And that tells you whether or not the variety is infected. The tests cost in the vicinity of two to three hundred dollars. Um, and that's for a test that can do typically, you know, 100 samples, but you have to do 100 generally all at once. So it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's an expensive process. And, uh, and if at the end of testing, you determine that that plantlet is still, it's still infected, then you have to start over again and you have to test again, um, down the line. So costs can add up quickly. Um, but the good news is once you get a plant clean, you can grow it on media that slows down the growth rate. So you can, in many cases, you can keep a plant in a culture vessel for a couple of years. When it gets to the point where it's outgrowing the culture vessel, you can, you can chop it up into smaller plants, move those into new culture vessels and keep and keep a clean culture going that way. So once it's clean, you can usually keep it clean. So that's kind of an overview of the process. It's, you know, anybody who can, anybody who can follow a moderately complicated, you know, cooking recipe can probably do meristem culture. Take some practice. If you've done a, if you've done a college chemistry class, you've probably got more than enough experience to handle it. And if you haven't, it's nothing you can't you can't teach yourself. But uh, but it can be pricey. It takes a lot of time. But there's really there's really no alternative if you're dealing with a plant that's uh, that's infected with this with disease. So uh, it's very important to get good at identifying plants that might be infected in the field and and roguing them out because prevention is a is a hell of a lot cheaper than. Uh, than cleaning a plant that has become infected. I hope that hope that got what you were after. How much hope is there for reducing day length sensitivity and increasing heat tolerance in Andean crops and what will this process look like? Well, every crop is going to be different and I'm not sure that there is any way to estimate how difficult the job will be. In most cases, we know nothing about the genetics of photoperiod response in these plants. So we don't know if it's a single gene change that needs to happen or a multiple gene change. It, and we don't really have very many good examples of, of plants where we know definitively how that process has, has, has worked. Andean potatoes are short-day tuberizers, and the modern potato has been bred to be day-neutral. But the modern potato borrowed that trait from Chilean potatoes that probably became day-neutral a long time ago. So we haven't really been able to observe the process of photoperiod adaptation. We do know, using potato again as an example, that it's fairly easy to select Andean potatoes for somewhat longer 
tuberization day lengths, up to 14 hours or so in just a few generations. So that's, that's hopeful. But, but every species is likely to be somewhat different in this regard. Moshua uh, is, a, is a short day tuberizer, but the variety Ken Aslet uh, appeared as a seedling and, and, and tuberizes at a much longer day length of 14 or 15 hours. And, you know, for it to appear in one generation like that, I would guess that, that it's a single gene change. Um, and it looks like that from breeding results, too. The, you know, the, the, that trait crosses fairly easily into new varieties. So, so Mashua might be, might be pretty easy. I seem to have some early results with longer day length in, in a Yuko. Uh, you know, not not a lot longer, but it, but enough to notice the difference. The the difficulty likely also um, relates to some degree with the ploidy of the species. So, you know, Yuko is is diploid, so you only have to change depending on the nature of the gene one or two alleles in order to uh, you know, assuming it is a single gene trait to to get to a a day-neutral tuberizer. Oka, uh, where I've had progress, but very gradual pros uh, progress, is octoploid. It has the, ge has the genomes of three different species mixed up in there. Uh, so that could be a really tough one. There may be more than one gene at work. There may be up to four copies of the gene from a given genome in there. That, uh, that affects that trait. And, and I would say definitely the, the kind of distribution that, that I've seen with, uh, with photo period and Oka makes me think that there is, that, that it's definitely a multi-genetic trait. And so the, there could be, it could take quite some work to, to get there. Um, but in general, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't give a very specific answer that because simply too too much is unknown. But I think there's hope for all of them. I think if you I think if you select for uh, for a given trait long enough, you know, assuming that there's any genetic diversity uh, in the plant at all, uh, you'll eventually get there. Okay. Um, I'm thrilled about all the new Uyuko varieties that you have produced, but how do I decide which ones to try? Uh, yeah, uh, it'll probably be a little easier in the fall. Um, I, last year was so crazy, I didn't get around to taking pictures of a lot of things that I intended to take pictures of, including most of the new Uyukos. And I know that most people pretty much pick varieties based on how they look and, and maybe how I describe the flavor. So that will help. Uh, the, the reason why I am offering so many varieties is primarily, primarily because I don't know uh, how they will perform in other climates. And because Oyuko from Seed has been so rare that I think it's worth giving each one of them a shot. The, the, you know, the, what I hope to see is that some of these varieties will uh, set seed more easily in other climates because if they if they do then 
that means there's potential for other people to start breeding a yuko and if that happens that there's a there's there's much more potential for the development in the crop for this country i can really only adapt a yuko to my climate which is a very specific climate that that, that that's pretty far out of compatibility with most of the United States. So if we want to see a yuko growing in the Midwest, then we need to fix its photoperiod problem, but we also need to fix its climate tolerance. And the best way to do that is for me to make varieties that other people, you know, in closer climates can, can, can breed with. So that's what we're looking for. And uh, it seems the simplest thing to me to just make them all available in one giant trial for whoever wants to try them and, uh, and, and, and wait to hear back if any of them have improved tolerance. But I can't really give you any guidance at this point on which ones you should grow. I just don't have enough information. I have, I, I'm, I'm basically making available every variety that looks like it has good potential. So um, there's a fairly wide range of yield. There's a fairly wide range of tuber size and color, um, plant form. But I have, but I've already culled the varieties that simply have puny tubers or that that don't flower even in my climate or that have really poor, you know, obviously poor disease or, or pest resistance. So, you know, these are all, these are all good candidates and there's so little Yuko diversity available that at least for the time being, I feel like I might as well just name and offer everything. And some of them will stick and some of them won't. I'll probably start to get more selective when I've I don't have, I don't know, a hundred varieties of a Yugo out there. At that point, it, you know, it will make sense to start, you know, being more highly selective. But so much effort goes into each new variety that that I might as well make it available. And, and I know uh, as well that, you know, many varieties that I have made available in the past but not ultimately selected for my breeding program are still being grown by people out there, you know, particularly with oka and potato. There are people growing all kinds of varieties that I've bred that just don't do it for me, but, but they love and they're keeping them going. So I'm, I'm happy with that result. I can't preserve every variety forever, but if, if somebody out there wants to, wants to take one on and propagate and continue to offer it, I think that's great. Uh, I would love to hear more about your farming practices, how you till, fertilize, irrigate, keep records, etc. This answer might be better suited to a video or blog post so we can see pictures. Um, well, I'll give you the, I'll give you the basics, um, but you're right; it would probably be it would probably probably be better with pictures. Um, I'm not much of a farmer, really. I'm a I'm I'm you know I'm I'm definitely a a plant breeder doing farming, not a not a farmer doing plant breeding. I, I have no background in farming. I, I find I'm not that great at it. 
so I use a combination of, of different strategies that uh, to try to make my life easier. We have we have a couple of different growing plots, but I do most of my work in uh, in my backyard, which is just about an acre, and uh, you know that's where I can do my most focused work because I'm because it's right in front of me, and uh, it's possible for me to make observations at all given times of day and night every day. I don't miss much that happens, you know, the, the, in, in what we call the breeding plot. But it's it's had a problem, which is that uh, a good portion of it floods on occasion, and when it does, it does it does a lot of damage. So for the past couple of years, I've been upgrading this 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 plot from uh, what had been lazy beds in the ground to um, concrete block raised beds, and that is. Uh, that that's been a job that's uh that's taken up a huge amount of time but it's uh you know we're we're getting close to the end now so when all is said and done I'll have uh you know several hundred raised beds that are 16 feet long and 2 feet wide each one accommodates uh of smaller crops two rows or one row of larger crops. So for example, in each 16-foot bed, I can fit 32 oka or yuko plants, or I can fit 12 mashwas or 8 yakones. I, I grow other plants as well, but uh, th these are just uh, open bottom beds, so they add, um, they, they get me 10 inches above grade it makes everything a lot easier, particularly for breeding, because everything is exactly the same size. There's no guesswork involved. I can make a map of of the field and know exactly what is in each bed. So that that's where my highest density of work happens. And then, and then we've got this other mess. You know, we've got got eight acres down the road that I'll be putting much more effort to in the future, but that's where I can grow larger quantities, both of, uh, you know, for production and also, and also where I can grow much larger numbers of seedlings, right? So, so the, ultimately the goal is to grow large numbers of, seed, of seedlings in the ground and select a few of the best of those and then take those varieties that are the best and bring them to the breeding plot where I can observe them very closely uh, and, and make further decisions about whether to breed with them or, um, uh, you know, w which crosses to make, etc. In terms of the, the mechanics, uh, I have a small 25 horsepower Japanese tractor, so I can use that for tilling, you know, but I don't have a huge amount of ground under cultivation. Even with so much acreage at my disposal down the road, I really doubt I'll ever use much more than between two and three acres. It's just, uh, I mean, maybe if I hire someone in the future, you know, to do higher levels of production, then I might use a little more. But the, the, the real limitation uh, that I face is ability to pay attention to plants. Plant breeding is really about I think more than anything, close observation, and I can only look at so many plants a day, and so that 
you know, I'm not so much limited by available space as I am just uh, available time. I, as far as records go, I keep maps of the fields. That's how I know where everything is. And then I have a, a database that I use for tracking morphological data about, um, about varieties. And that way I can track what date did flowering begin and end every year. That allows me to make better decisions about how to plant varieties in relation to one another to maximize you know the kind uh, the the kind of open pollinated crosses that I want to occur and I can track yields over time and I uh, and uh, you know I track a lot of just trait data as well in the hope that one day I will be able to crunch the numbers on that and get a better understanding of the genetics underlying various traits so I track a lot of data but I don't track as much as I as I used to simply because the numbers in some cases have gotten so big. I tend now not to track morphological data until after I've made a first selection where once I just tracked everything and that took that that was a lot of work. It, irrigation is a combination of uh, irrigation is a combination of drip and uh, and sprinklers. Eventually I'd like to get to all drip um, sprinklers are closing the gap in the meantime. So yeah, it's not a huge operation, uh, you know, other uh, heavy tasks, you know, tilling and, and ridging and, uh, you know, are done with the tractor, but pretty much everything else is done by hand. And having, uh, having quite a bit in raised beds makes that a lot easier. Uh, even 10 inches makes a dramatic difference in, uh, in the amount of, uh, in, in, in the amount of stress that bending over puts on your body, surprisingly. It, it doesn't seem like that much, but it makes a huge difference. That makes weeding easier, makes making observations easier, makes making crosses easier. So that's all been really good, other than the huge investment of time and money that goes into making the beds. But it's been successful enough that I might even turn a larger section of the of the farm acreage into into block beds as well in the future yeah that's probably a good overview uh i'll uh, i'll probably revisit this in the future and uh, add some more pictures as well and that brings us to the end of q a episode number two yay if you have questions that you would like to have answered in a future episode send them to podcast at cultivariable.com and uh, who knows, maybe, uh, maybe we'll do another one of these in a month or so. Before then, I have an upcoming podcast with Joseph Lofthouse, and after that, Doug Strong. So stay tuned. Those will be coming up soon. Thanks, everybody.